This week on the nonprofit news feed, of course, brought to you by Whole Whale. This is, oh my gosh, 131, last day of January. And now we're releasing this in February. We're done with January. Like that, that's some big news, but we're going to be talking about some Pegasus spyware and uh, national blood donation crisis, among other things. Nick, how's it going? It's going good, George. Happy almost February. We'll dive right into it. Our first story is like you said, about that Pegasus spyware, we wanted to highlight a post released last week by Human Rights Watch, which is an international human rights organization. And the post that they released detailed the exact ways in which it discovered that its crisis and conflict director's cell phone had been effectively infected with the Pegasus spyware. And their post details five times between April and August of 2021 that they identify that the phone was breached. Now, what they did was they took this data and they actually got it peer-reviewed by a special unit within Amnesty International. And they were able to determine exactly the kind of exploit it implemented, which is a zero-click exploit, which means that you don't even have to click anything for your phone to be breached. And this is pretty crazy. And it's getting a lot of buzz in the press because it's that next level surveillance tech that everyone kind of dreads and has really, really serious implications. And now you're seeing that starting to flow into the civil society world. The Pegasus software is made by a company called NSO Group, and it's distributed the software to a large amount of a number of different countries across the world, but actually the New York Times just uncovered that the FBI has also purchased this software before then deciding not to use it. But George, the story here is there is a software out there that can infect or breach any phone with full surveillance capabilities. What does this mean for civil society? What does this mean for tech security? What's your take on this? So this is known as a zero-click exploit, which means, you know, your standard sort of don't click on that, you know, people on our staff, don't enter your password in randomly there, you know, and it's this illusion that, well, as long as I don't do anything dumb, I cannot be exploited or hacked. A zero-click means it doesn't matter what you do and what you have in place. They can ping Just knowing your cell phone number, boom, they can hack you, which is uh, disturbing. And sure, it may be in the hands of people that you you trust, maybe, believe in, or have enough money to pay for it, which becomes a little bit more concerning. And even knowing that the FBI bought and then, according to this Times article, didn't end up using, okay, because I buy tons of stuff I don't end up using. I don't know, but that's what the article says. Even when it's the FBI, you don't need to look very far back in, you know, now that we're entering into February Black History Month and aware that the FBI also looked into an American citizen named Martin Luther King Jr. quite heavily in order to uh, basically to attack him. And and so, yeah, no, not a big fan of, of anything going on here. And I love, again, what the nonprofit industry is doing here. And of course, media bringing it to where, but like nonprofits, Human Rights Watch doing incredibly important work and, and raising flags when they should be raised, uh, which is um, which is important. And it was peer reviewed, we should also say, by Amnesty International. So uh, we're definitely keeping an eye uh, on this and how it's being used. 
Yeah. I think, George, maybe the the takeaway for the standard viewer who, let's face it, <laughs> we don't have the, the capabilities to, you know, protect ourselves from this, this spyware. But I would say probably the easiest and simplest takeaway is do the software updates. When your phone pushes a new software update, just go for it. Update your computer, keep all your devices as up to date as possible, because oftentimes there are security patches and updates um, within those kind of built-in updates. Look, I'd wish to say that'd be enough to protect you. Uh, I'm not smart enough to say that. That's absolutely true. George, how about another not great feeling story? <laughs> I think we're just giving, um, well, we're giving honest <laughs> look at what's going on from the nonprofit. The, the upside is nonprofits are freaking watching and we love it. It's great. We love it. The, the silver lining of every story is the incredible nonprofit that's behind it. Um, this one is about the national blood donation crisis. So this is from some reporting out of Arizona, where Arizonans, particularly at the University of Arizona, are working to organize blood drives amid a national blood donation crisis. The American Red Cross estimates that a 62% drop in college and high school blood drives nationally are at least partially able to explain the national shortage. Um, And according to this reporting, many hospitals in Tucson have had to cancel elective surgeries because the state is seeing a two-year low in blood donations. So this is another one of those aspects where this uh, blood donations, which equates to essentially critical infrastructure, is being held up by nonprofits and is being impacted by the pandemic and the shift to remote. So within the newsletter and Within the show notes, show notes will link out to the American Red Cross where you can learn about how to help and donate blood if that's something you're interested in. But uh, just goes to show that nonprofits are holding up a lot of different aspects of society and even our healthcare systems. Yeah, that's a massive drop. And not to be too ghoulish about it, but frankly, like college kids, younger people provide uh, blood with more platelets and more. Frankly, uh, value to patients that will potentially need it. And that's a big decrease, 62% drop. And that's one of those second order effects of pandemic school closures and removing people from working with each other in person. And, you know, couldn't have predicted it, but now it makes a lot of sense. And I'll tell you, if it's happening in Arizona, it's happening in a number of other places. So hopefully that's an opportunity if you work in and around uh, this ecosystem to realize that. If at all you touch the medical industry, that it might behoove you to gather college kids to rally uh, young people in support of this, uh, among others, for much-needed blood drives because this need is not going away. The need is real. All right, we can move along into our summary. And this first story, George, I'm going to turn... pretty closely back over to you. But the headline, as reported by Coindesk.com, is that Ethereum, Ethereum uh, blockchain coin founder Vitalik Buterin will receive back $100 million um, in USDC from the more than $1 billion in Shiba Inu, which I believe is a coin that he previously donated to the India-based um, COVID-19 relief fund crypto relief. And it seems that um, 
the the money's moving back and it'll be uh, redeployed um, in other in other areas. Um, but George, what's what's your take on this? Why did you choose to highlight the story? I chose this because it was essentially one of the largest crypto donations in, frankly, recorded history when uh, Vitalik chose to re-give away and redistribute 50 trillion in SHIB tokens, which are these funny dog meme tokens, uh, worth about uh, $1.2 billion at the time. And, you know, there's a lot of questions. It happened quickly. It was sent to uh, Indian Relief for uh, found COVID. You know, there's questions of how you deploy and use and manage that type of piece. So actually fairly impressive, responsible, interesting that they're moving $100 million um, in USDC, which is a stable coin, just means blockchain dollars, essentially, for the non-informed to do the type of deployment um, back into crypto relief focused work on COVID uh, and COVID science and relief projects worldwide. So uh, interesting um, that, you know, I've never seen an organization send, send money back. And I think maybe part of it was because the difficulty of deploying uh, crypto capital effectively and distributedly. So it's interesting to watch major crypto philanthropy move. And, and it's just um, something and why I highlighted it. Yeah, that's a great take. And it's interesting to think about that juxtaposed to, to real money as, as well. Um, and just when I think about this, I think about, you know, a billion dollars, whatever it may be in crypto money, it's hard to spend that much money, <laughs> you know, like it's hard to put that amount of money to work in a responsible, impactful way. Um, so to me, this seems like a really responsible thing to do. Well, yet yeah, to pull that thread further, like, I'll just be honest, like, this is not something, this is not a mistake. And I use mistake in a qualifying way that traditional philanthropy would have made. You can't simply dump impossible amounts of money on an organization that doesn't necessarily have the infrastructure. I'm not saying that this is the case, but you can't just dump, you know, two, three, 10, 100x amounts of money on an organization that doesn't have the rails to, to deploy it. It just, it doesn't work to your point and it doesn't work in an efficient way. And, and so, you know, I think there may be this interesting narrative of, crypto wealthy being sort of impatient with the change they want to see in the world, wanting to see immediate uh, sort of like, well, it's on the blockchain and I can transfer it within 10 seconds. So therefore it must like, you know what? IRL takes time and planning. And so there's this like interesting collision of old versus new and and, and some folks learning lessons that maybe uh, others already knew. So Again, I, I find it interesting to watch. And, and yeah, I know I'm projecting a good amount here, but you can follow the dollars at the very least. Yeah, it's a really interesting narrative. And I'm sure we'll see stories, more stories like this down the road. And it's something we'll, we'll surface for our listeners. Our next story comes from the New York Times. And the headline of this is, Democrats decreed dark money, then they won with it in 2020. We've talked a lot about dark money and large sums of money floating through political organizations, lots of which are registered nonprofits on this show. Last week, we talked about um, crowdfunding money um, for the, the, the Capitol protesters and, and rioters. This week, 
we're, we're flipping flipping the books and we're looking at dark money, at least in this side, on, on the, the, the side of the Democratic Party. And a Times analysis, analysis showed that 15 of the most politically active nonprofit organizations that generally align with the Democratic Party spent more than $1.5 billion in 2020. Um, and that's compared to about $900 million spent by a comparable sample of 15 of the most politically active groups aligned with the GOP. So that is to say it is happening on both sides to an incredibly large degree. A lot of this money are being siphoned through organizations that are, whether they're, they're PACs or they're lobbying, or what have you, tons of different vehicles. There's a ton of money floating around in U.S. elections. And I don't think it's healthy for either side. It's not healthy for democracy in general. And we saw incredible amounts of spending in the 2020 election, breaking every record, shattering it with ferocity. And I'm concerned about what this increasing amount of money in politics means for the stability of our, our democratic institutions and their necessity that they remain um, unbeholden to the, the power of money and influence. I think it's important to raise it. And I'm glad that the Times is covering it to sort of saying like, you know, cry about, argue about dark money in politics and then accept when, when your team wins. Like, Okay. Uh, one of the notes in here is that, frankly, this is uh, self-admitted by the Times uh, analysis of 2020 data, likely incomplete. Frankly, like the nature of dark money is that, surprise, hard to track. Um, and you know, by their by their definition, it is not being able to um, basically see those donors as they relate to the money in getting. Uh, the tax uh, tax free even it's generally means like funds spent to influence politics by nonprofits that don't disclose their donors and that's that's the question right we want to see where those dollars and from whom they came and that's that's why like the question is being raised here I think it's hard <laughs> for nonprofits to say like all right under the current rules like what constitutes political versus non political yes there are rules but it's a long list of, of folks there sending money into the system. And overall, uh, I have to say, probably not good for democracy, because who's to say that foreign powers can't essentially just write checks to nonprofits that happen to, you know, like happen to be doing work this way or that. But this isn't the only door that's open to this, you know, uh, you know, the, the special interest groups and lobby groups are uh, abound. But, you know, when it touches the sector and screws with uh, you know, there's names that you'd recognize in here. Uh, there's some there's some clear conversations at some of these organizations, and they name uh, a bunch um, in here that that may have to have a, another dialogue with their with their donors about truly where where that money is going. But again, even with nonprofits, like better than maybe other special interest groups, is that it's in the nine nine. You can see where that money is going. To some extent, um, and you can see you can't see the donors necessarily, but you can see where it's going and how they're how they're working to to do that. So, and that level of audit, at least that's good. Yeah, it's like the devil you know or the devil you don't, 
And um, devil, you can audit. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, I go back and forth about this because I think that political involvement is important. And, you know, I have my my own political priorities and and, and beliefs and, and that kind of thing. And, you know, you always want your 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 candidate, your party, your cause to be supported. And it's important to work on behalf of those causes. It's I think, though, the flip side of that is the sheer volume at which that's happening via the sheer amount of money is, um, I think, the thread in this story here. So it is and it isn't like like how much really I just to be honest like the total reporting total reporting this is under three billion dollars so that is like all the track money through the nonprofits I think there's a lot more than that heading its way into into political hands um so I'm curious what it is as a fraction that's true that's true I guess in this article we're looking at the top 15 um but and to your point it's dark money, <laughs> you know. <laughs> there's no, there's no, uh, there's no North Star, you know, um, helping you understand the the full picture there. That's a good. Actually, a that's lot. A good point. They say like presidential candidates raised and spent four point one billion twenty four months twenty nineteen to twenty twenty. Ah, that's a lot of money then. <laughs> it's four. Okay. It'll uh, <laughs> it'll keep the lights on. I mean, they said the according to OpenSecrets.org, though uh, most ever spent 2020 election cost 14.4 billion in political spending, uh, doubled the cost of 2016. So that's a lot of money. Um, wow, smaller percentage. Okay, it's inter- We'll see what 2022 brings. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well. <laughs> what else we we'll have? get there. We're not there. Not all right. We'll move to Cleveland. Um, a great story uh, reported from ideastream.org. And this is about a nonprofit called Digital C, which is an organization operating out of Cleveland that's helping low income and otherwise um, disadvantaged folks in Cleveland get access to the internet. And there was a statistic in here that I couldn't believe. Um, And according to the National Digital Inclusion Alliance's analysis of worst connected cities in Cleveland, some 30% of residents in 2019 had no access of any kind to internet. That is crazy for a modern American city. So this nonprofit is hoping to fill that void and helping connect folks who otherwise haven't had the access to get connected to the internet. And George, we work in tech or we work in digital marketing. We know there is an extreme disadvantage to not having internet access. It, I couldn't even imagine how to live my life without it. Um, I, I couldn't have gotten this job. There is so many things that are inaccessible when you don't have access to the internet. So it's incredible to see a nonprofit stepping up and helping folks get that access. Yeah, putting together the big plan, but I think this ties into what we may start to see as a larger narrative, internet as a right. Water, electricity, heat. And if you can't go to school because your schools have been shut down by public, state, local mandate, and if those public schools have been shut down and you are then dependent, on an internet connected device to attend and achieve uh, the educational outcomes you want. I think it's a, it's a pretty easy walk over to the side of internet as a right 
Um, so it's great to see. And obviously, you're going to need a lot of infrastructure spending to get there. Absolutely. Worth every penny. George, how about a feel-good story? Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> All right. This is from uh, NBC 12 News Affiliate. And this is about a retired Colonel Richard Dick Tolliver, um, who's a former Top Gun fighter pilot. And he was a protege of the famed Tuskegee Airmen. Um, and apparently was trained by Tuskegee Airmen. It was one of the first of five African-American pilots to fly the F-4, um, was given a flight on a historic plane by the organization Grounded No More. Um, and it's just so cool to see a well-deserving veteran getting the recognition and uh, appreciation they deserve um, going to back up into the sky uh, on a on a historic plane. It's just all sorts of all sorts of awesome um, to honor our, our veterans. And especially moving into Black History Month, recognizing the the not insignificant fact that he trained under the original Tuskegee Airmen, uh, a very sad part of American history and important to remind and remember that uh, as, as we move into Black History Month. Absolutely. All right, Nick. Thanks so much. Take care. Thanks, George. This has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com university to keep learning with us. Thanks as always to gregthomasmusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 